Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and fill this place, fill each one of us to overflowing. And Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words. And your grace and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to have to ask you to lean in a little bit this morning. My voice is not 100%. Uh, So... They say that hindsight is 2020. And at my age, uh, really having 2020 vision of any sort is a gift. So I'll take it. Um, but why is hindsight so clear? Well, with the benefit of some time and reflection, one perhaps sees what would have been a, a better way through a certain uh, Circumstance, and we can kind of drive ourselves crazy with hindsight. But another way that hindsight can be helpful as a lens to see things clearly is that with the benefit of time and reflection, one can see clearly the true significance of a particular event or an encounter. And that brings wisdom which helps one see clearly, not only in hindsight, but in the present and on into the future. So as was mentioned earlier by Sandy, today is the the last Sunday of this season of Epiphany. And this season is all about vision. That's what we're into this season. We celebrate these manifestations, these revelations of God's kingdom come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And today, as we are on this last Sunday of the season, it's always the transfiguration that we feature. Um, This rather enigmatic event uh, when Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain, Mount Tabor, and there, before their eyes, he was transfigured. His clothes, we read, became radiant, dazzling white, whiter than any earthly bleach could bleach them. And then with uh, Jesus, there appeared two others. Elijah appears, the representative of the prophets, and Moses appears, the bearer of the law, and they're both talking with Jesus. And Peter, as he is wont to do, uh, blurts out something. And uh, he says, he says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And why did he say this? Well, because he didn't know what to say. <laughs> He's Peter. <laughs> he just talks. Ready, fire, aim. They were all, it turns out, Terrified. Peter, James, and John, they're terrified because they are beholding the divine presence. Their their master, their their friend, their teacher that they've been walking around Galilee, this guy is now radiant in a way that is clearly divine. And terror 
being terrified, that's what happens when one sees the divine presence. It terrifies them. And then it wasn't only their eyes that were seeing, but also their ears that were hearing the divine. As a cloud overshadowed them, and out of the cloud came a voice, and the voice was the voice of God, the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And then it was over. The cloud just vaporized, and, and they were looking around, and, and they didn't see anyone else with them but Jesus, and it was Jesus the way he used to be, but not the way he used to be. So what was all of that? What was all of that? Why is it here at this point in the gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry? And in this case today, we're in Mark's account. So if you want to open it up, feel free to do that as we make our way through. We're in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. You can find that in the Pew Bibles if you didn't bring your own Bible. That's on page 844 in the Pew Bibles. What does this event mean? What is going on? It's clear that it was pretty unclear to the disciples at the time. And if you're reading Mark's gospel for the first time, which was usually the intent was that you would just take this book, this biography of this hero, and you'd read it from cover to cover. And if you were reading this story cover to cover and you came to this, it would be kind of puzzling. What's, what's this all about? It's hard to understand what the significance of this event is and why it comes here and why it doesn't seem to change the way the disciples think and act that substantially in the near term. I mean, they, they still are the same ones who, who do all these foolish things and they're the ones who, you know, Judas still betrays him and they still abandon him and Peter still denies him. But I wonder how these disciples saw this event in hindsight. And the good news is, is that we kind of know, we have it, we at least know how Peter saw it in hindsight. So in our passage from Peter's second epistle that we heard from just a little while ago, so we have a little bit of Peter's hindsight. He's likely writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome, and he's aware that it is likely near the time that he will be executed He's writing to Christians, most likely in Asia Minor area, and they are experiencing suffering of some sort. It, it's some kind of opposition, persecution, maybe a combination of all of it, and it's threatening to erode their faith and their hope in the Lord's salvation. And so Peter's writing to encourage them and to remind them and to galvanize for them that which is under threat, their faith. He wants to secure their belief in Jesus, or to use his words, to stir them up by way of reminder. And he kicks off the letter by reminding his readers that, that Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's talking about Jesus the divine. 
And Peter's writing this, these expansive, beautiful, glorious, hopeful words at this point in his life and ministry that seems to have ultimate precarity as he sits in prison awaiting his impending crucifixion. But at this point, guess what? He's had plenty of time to reflect on his life with Jesus and with that has gained plenty of hindsight on all that he has witnessed throughout his life with Christ. And, and he's passing on this clear sight he's gained with time and reflection so that others may be able to have it whenever they need it. And what does he write about to serve as that galvanizing anchor of assurance? That lens to give them clear sight that their hope, that their faith might not be lost. He writes about the transfiguration. You know, he was completely confused about what was happening at the time, but now with hindsight, he writes these rock-solid and clear-eyed words. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter knew as he wrote these words that the place where he was and the place where his first readers at the time were and where any future readers of this letter would inevitably be he knew that it was a dark place. But the transfiguration was like a brilliant lamp in a dark place. That's what Peter realized in hindsight. I'm guessing because it had been that for him over and over again in many dark places in which he found himself. And if you look back to our Markan account, the account of the transfiguration that it comes at the beginning of chapter 9 in verse 31. Uh, I mean, sorry, at the beginning of, uh, he's telling his followers this, uh, this he's showing them this, this transfiguration right after he has said at the end of chapter 8, verse 31, that he, the Son of Man, Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the religious leaders and be killed and then he adds this strange and, and supernatural thing that after three days, he will rise again. So he gives them this. He drops this bomb on them. And they're, I think, pretty bewildered by it. They're uh, clearly unhappy about it. It's so devastating that in chapter 8, verse 32, Peter rejected it, forcefully rebuking his own master for saying it. And for this rebuke, Jesus then rebuked Peter right back and made clear that the path of discipleship was one of suffering and death. 
saying to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. I mean, they're in a dark place. And from that dark place, as they're trying to make sense of what he has just said, that he is going to be killed, that disturbing message of the cross, it's from there. That's where Jesus then invites them, Peter, James, and John, to come with him up the high mount of transfiguration. And I'm sure as they hiked up that mountain path with Jesus, they were still in their dark place. A dark place in their hearts and in their minds. And into that darkness comes an eyewitnessing of Jesus transfigured with a majestic, divine brilliance that was so brilliant it terrified them. What was Jesus doing? Why then? I'm sure many things were happening there, for sure. And we could unpack the significance of a lot of it, of why Elijah and Moses were there, and what the voice meant when it said, listen to him. But I think it's probably worth it for us to simply ask, why were Peter, James, and John there? Well, I'd say that they were there for all of us who weren't there. And by showing these three men this spectacular and terrifying transfiguration, right after he had told them he was going to be rejected and was going to be uh, suffering and, and was going to be killed, Jesus showed how the suffering and the glory and the majesty are inextricably linked. Jesus, the glorious one, who is God's beloved son, to whom they must listen, is the one, after the cloud clears, who alone is with them and will walk with them down this mountain, back into the valley, into the world, and eventually will stagger for them under the weight of the cross that he will bear for them right into the deepest darkness enshrouding another mount, the mount called Golgotha. These two mountains, they're very different. But here's what's the same about them. They're both mountains where glory is displayed. Because of the glory seen in the transfiguration, the cross could and would become glorious. This was no mere man. This was the God-man, the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets who would suffer and die. Jesus made the cross a place of glory as he made it the means of salvation, crucifying sin and death through the most hideous and dark display of mankind's capacity for sin and death. And once the three days passed, 
And the glorious beloved son of God was vindicated, was raised from the dead. A different epiphany, another transfiguration was on display. And then he ascended from another mount. And after that, his disciples were once again sent down the mountain and into the dark world. But he would be with them. He would send them, not helpless, but he would be with them always as they were his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He would send them armed with what they had witnessed with their own eyes. They would see the world as it really is for sure, fallen, darkened, bent, but they would also see the true light of their glorious Lord, that light he had placed in each of their own hearts, a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. A light that will one day, when his kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven, be the only light. There will be no need for the sun or the moon or any other lamp of any sort for, to quote Peter in his epistle, the day will have dawned And the morning star will have arisen in our hearts. But for now, we need the lamp. We need the memory, the anchor, whatever the metaphor is that works for you. For so much of this life can be like the prison cell. with the feeling of impending death waiting at the door. It can be like that, I know. It can be very easy to lose hope. I know I find my hope is under a daily assault. And things keep coming at me, one thing after another. It's like these snuffers that we use up here to just put the candle out. How much more can I take, you might ask. Where are you, God? When will things improve? Is there any light anywhere? And I think back to Peter's stumbling words as he witnessed the transfiguration. He said, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. It is good. This, whatever this is, this is good. Good. As confused and terrified as he was, he instinctively knew that the glory he was seeing is the good for which he and all of humankind is intended and where we are invited to live even as we live here in this what can all so often be such agonizing depths. The Estonian Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann wrote this about the transfiguration. We find it. We hear and receive this word where it resounded anew in all its power and fullness, where it rang out as the human answer to the divine good, 
Lord, it is good that we are here. Through this answer, on the Mount of the Transfiguration was witnessed forever, for all time, man's reception of the divine good as his life, as his calling. And it is by this vision, this knowledge, this experience, that the church in her deepest depths lives. As real as all the suffering and pain of this mortal life is, and it is so real, this glory, this glory of the transfigured divine presence, brilliant in all of his glory and majesty, is how things really are. This glory is who Jesus really is. This glory is what we are becoming and will one day fully become. I pray this for you and for me that we would see glimpses. Glimpses or perhaps we would recollect and look with hindsight and a renewed appreciation an understanding to those epiphanies, those transfiguration moments that we have witnessed with our own eyes. Maybe it was a word spoken by a sister or a brother, just the right word at just the right time in just the right way. Maybe it was a, an act of sacrifice by a sister or a brother, a Christ-like, cruciform way of living for you. A warm welcome out of the cold, dark night. Or maybe it was like a, just a divine revelation, something you can't explain, where you just had this deep assurance that God loves me. He loves me because he loves me, and I know it, despite the circumstances. Maybe it was an encounter with the glorious one through the sacramental, receiving his body and blood with empty hands and dry mouth. Or maybe it was a transportation into the very throne room of heaven through the mysterious power and beauty of some form of art, music, or poetry, or a painting, or something. I don't know about you, but I need the transfiguration. To quote the poet Malcolm Geith, I need that glimpse of how things really are in the midst of a world where the blackened sky and the darkened scar tries to eclipse. I think we all do, so we can make it in this world. We can make it on our way through our Lenten fast these next 40 some odd days so we can make our way every day as we deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Jesus. I'm just going to close with a bit of art. This is a poem by Malcolm Guide. I have it printed there at the front of your bulletin. Um, I found this powerful for me. It's just called The Transfiguration. He writes, For that one moment, in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, 
the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell, dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory, full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leaped up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within. A sudden blaze of long extinguished hope trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar eclipse that glimpse of how things really are. Amen.